welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, we have question, question, question for you. Question of the week. And next week, we're back with Adam Duvall for AYA, Adolescent and Young Adult Oncology. You won't want to miss that discussion. And in two weeks, we're back with Dr. Dan Morgan for medical overuse and hospital quality and safety metrics. You won't want to miss that discussion either. So we've got a lot of plenary session in store for you. Stay tuned. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast, and we want to know your feedback on them. I'm back with Ian Straley for Question of the Week, USMLE Step 2 CK Inspired By Edition. Ian, it's great to have you back in the studio. Good to be back once again. Must be tiring coming and going for all these questions. Yeah, a lot of walking in and out of your office to record record it's a lot of work and you you know you're coming from a long way all right so what do we have this week on question of the week all right so this week we have oh i don't want to give it away but oh yeah don't uh, don't give the punchline away yeah just tell us the question i think everybody will pick up that this is a gi question so we'll just preface it that way okay so a 32 year old female comes in with complaints of substernal burning after meals especially acidic or fatty meals she takes tums which improve her symptoms She has no other medications that she takes. And in the past few days, she's been having some nausea with some dry heaves. She endorses drinking alcohol regularly, but does not smoke. She states that liquids go down with no problem, but large bites of food sometimes get stuck. What's the most appropriate management of her symptoms? Option A, 24-hour ambulatory pH study. Option B, start a PPI and encourage alcohol cessation. Option C, esophago-gastro-duodenoscopy, EGD, or option D, a barium swallow. Okay, so those are our options. The 24-hour pH study, the PPI and cease alcohol, the EGD, and the barium swallow. And let's remind ourselves of the case. So this is a 32-year-old female who's got substernal burning after meals, especially acidic or fatty ones. She takes Tums, which improves her symptoms. You don't have to know too much to have a sense that that really does sound a lot like GERD. Yes. Okay, so that that part I know. Uh, She takes no other medications, uh, but lately she's been having nausea with dry heaves. Um, and, and, and then you talked about, um, something that, uh, that did kind of pique my attention, which is, uh, that she has dysphagia, uh, not with liquids, uh, but with solids. It gets stuck. Mm -hmm. I don't like that. I don't like stuck. Yeah, so that makes uh, kind of raises your suspicion for something yeah. a little more yeah. insidious. So I guess I would say that, um, well, I guess I would say what we don't have here 
you know, one could imagine that one could have done sort of a mega study. So we take like everyone between the ages of 20 and 40, 40 and 60, we probably do different studies based on age because I think age has something to do with what we're kind of maybe concerned about in the back of our mind. Okay. But we take, you know, we take different groups of people. But let's say we took, you know, men and women between the ages of 20 and 40 who don't have a smoking history uh, or with a smoking history. You can pick what population you want to study. And in, they came in with this kind of dysphagia and you randomize them to different sort of strategies. Maybe in one arm, uh, the strategy is, you know, you remove move all potentially offending agents like coffee, dark chocolate, and alcohol, um, and then you kind of see what happens to them over time. Uh, in, in the other arm, you perform like an invasive procedure right away to exclude perhaps the worst thing you're thinking about, and maybe also to cinch a possible diagnosis on your double DX, EOE maybe. Um, and then you follow these people out and you look at like utilization and how many missed um, bad lesions uh, that you have in each arm. Mm -hmm. You know, one can imagine that one could kind of like run a test of a strategy. And, and what I want to say is I put that all out there to say like we don't have that at all. Right. We don't have that. We have what I think reasonable people think is reasonable. And I think reasonable people think that if you just have the symptoms of GERD, it is okay uh, to watch those people and try these conservative management methods. But once you start getting food stuck, you have bought yourself a visit with the endoscope. Yes, so. that is correct. Mm. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Or not a chicken dinner in this case. Because yeah, it might get stuck. It might get stuck. It might get stuck, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's the most appropriate next management is the EGD. I think another uh, choice that could have pulled people in the wrong direction is a barium swallow. Yeah, I Be think so. Yeah, because of the dysphagia. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not a bad option. Um, the workup for dysphagia might e actually begin with a barium swallow, but with this overwhelming GERD history and an alarm symptom like the, the food getting stuck, nausea, dry heaves, those things, and, and getting worse, it sounds like, from the stem, those things would push you towards the EGD prior to the barium swallow in this case. Mm, I see. Well, I think this is an interesting case, and I wonder if there are any listening gastroenterologists who want to push back on the boards uh, and say that they might do things a little bit differently. Yeah. I think uh, that would be kind of interesting to hear that kind of argument. Um, I think that, you know, you probably... Um, have bought yourself um, the endoscopy here just to exclude anything serious going on and maybe you know some submucosal biopsies will be able to find something else like an EOE or something like that going on um, but I think it's an interesting question and of course the last thing of course is that although no one no one wants this patient and no one hopes this patient and no one expects this 32 year old woman uh, to have a cancer uh, it, it, it can happen even at that age and we've all seen cases like that yeah Rarely. Rarely. Thank goodness for that. Um, Ian Straley, it's great to have you on for Question of the Week. Good to be here once again, and uh, we'll see you the next time. I'm back in Plenary Session HQ for Question of the Week, inspired by MKSAP Edition. I'm here with Derek Tao. Derek, it's a pleasure to have you back. Thanks for having me back. It's been such a long time since I've last seen you. Yeah, indeed. Maybe about 45 seconds. But these are weekly, so the audience has a different experience. Derek, what's our question of the week today? All right. It begins with a 27-year-old woman. She has a left neck gland swelling uh, for six weeks now. Mm. Otherwise, negative review of systems. She had an FNA of the cervical lymph node one week ago with no evidence of malignancy, no cytologic or flow cytometry. Um, she's otherwise healthy, no medications. On physical exam, her vitals are normal. She has multiple left cervical and supraclavicular nodes measuring three centimeters in size, mm, which are big. firm and rubbery. Mm. Um, the chest is clear to auscultation. There's no hepatosplenomegaly, and your lab work is all normal. Which of the following is the most appropriate management? 
A, observation, B, surgical lymph node biopsy, C, PET-CT scan, D, core lymph node biopsy? Hmm. Well, that's a good question. So you got a 27-year-old woman who's in your clinic, and this woman has had persistent, multiple left cervical neck lymphadenopathy with the largest measuring three centimeters. So we're talking real lymphadenopathy. Someone has an attempted an FNA, and that FNA did not find anything problematic. It was a non-diagnostic FNA. And now the question is, what should the further workup be? And I guess this lymphadenopathy has persisted long enough that it's not the kind of thing you can just say, let's just see what happens. Perhaps it's some acute infection. It's the kind of thing you really want to know what's going on. And there is only one good way to know what's going on when one of the things on your double DX is a lymphoma diagnosis. And that is you need to see architecture. You got to see the architecture of the node. And the best way to do that, the simplest way, is just a simple, quick referral to your ENT colleagues for a quick surgical excisional node biopsy. What's the answer to the question, Derek Tao? You are correct. B, surgical lymph node biopsy. Mm. And what's the rationale? Well, I think ultimately, like you said, you need architecture. So it's important to kind of be able to understand the yield of an FNA versus a core uh, biopsy versus a surgical excisional biopsy. Mm -hmm. And so um, initially, I think it's also kind of important to know that a lot of it depends on your exam and the clinical findings. Because... Mm -hmm. If it were soft, small, and freely mobile, I don't think you have to pursue anything additional. Right. And if it was also like in the inguinal region where lymph nodes often kind of rise and fall, um, you might be a little bit more likely to give it some time before you really kind of jumped upon it. Yeah. So I'm not sure how s strict some of these um, recommendations are. If it if you have a supraclavicular node, you know, do you automatically have to go for something mm -hmm. uh, like a excisional biopsy and i guess i'd say to be perfectly honest with you a lot of the times this person would have gotten a core and the core will tell you the answer uh cores have often told us the answer because you just get enough architecture in the core to make the answer um sometimes some of my colleagues who are outside of lymphoma you know lymphoma doctors we like to often get the excisional node biopsy some of my colleagues who are just in lymphoma criticize other people for doing an fna but there are many clinical situations where somebody has a large palpable node and you do an fna and you find carcinoma maybe for instance non-small cell carcinoma and in that case you you may be done you may have just answered the question and you might not need further testing in lymphoma, of course, as you know, the key distinctive feature between diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and follicular lymphoma is total absence of architecture and sheets of large cells. And so sometimes it is helpful to get the whole node and be able to look at it to see, are there patches of DLBCL in there? Yeah, I think it's tough for the community primary care doctor, right? Because it seems logical that if you were doing FNA and it was negative for anything on flow cytometry, mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe you, that's you're enough. Done. Maybe yeah. you're done because your sheets and sheets of lymphoma would hopefully. Yeah, I guess I'd there. say in that case, what you're worried about is, um, so I think there's actually like an added step here, which is that um, if it really were a large cell lymphoma, then there might have been a higher likelihood of having caught that on the FNA. But what you might have here is follicular lymphoma in some pockets of that lymph node, and that needle struck in an angle where you didn't actually hit any of mm -hmm. that follicular lymphoma. Mm -hmm. And so you were unable to find that monoclonal B cell population on flow cytometry. And so actually, this is probably the person more than any person who probably needs the excisional node. So you can look through the whole thing to make sure there isn't follicular lymphoma hiding somewhere in there yeah well that's a good question 
And I guess I'd say that this is a question that I also want to put a little asterisk by because I wonder if in a future date somebody did a really well done randomized trial of taking people like this and they randomize them to different strategies. And one strategy, the arm is maybe excisional node first and always right off the bat. And the other arm, it might be a cascade testing strategy with an FNA and then a core and then an open node biopsy. And, and I just want to point out this randomized trial has never been done. So we're kind of reasoning by kind of experience and kind of logic, but we've never done the right study. The right study is, you know, take the node out and all the people versus do this cascade testing. And I suspect, it might, I don't know the answer to what this trial would show, but it's possible. The trial would show that cascades testing minimizes the exposure to surgical procedures and, and, and anesthesia, makes the diagnosis from the first two steps in 60% of people, and thus prevents the need for the final step um, and spares so many surgeries. I mean, I think this is, this is the kind of study that somebody ought to do. We need I'll beat on my drum. We need a non-conflicted clinical trials agenda and studies of how do you work up people with persistent cervical lymphadenopathy should be randomizable. It should be something that we know the answer to. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'm sometimes a little sad that I'm probably now a decade into my time into medicine and I'm probably gonna be doing this for a couple more decades and I'll probably finish my career and the answer we tell will be no further along uh, than in 2019 because it was no further along in 2009 and it was no further along in actually 2005 when I started down this road. And, and that's kind of sad that we don't answer this question. What do you think? I agree. <laughs> you agree? I yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, I guess I'd say that it's interesting to me that a clinical question like this which is quite answerable and could be answered in a well-done study. There's very low enthusiasm for pursuing that study. But in contrast, everyone under the sun is going to be excited to pursue an uncontrolled phase two study in lymphoma combining a checkpoint inhibitor with whatever you want. You do an uncontrolled study of 60 people combine a checkpoint inhibitor with anything you want in your IIT study. You're going to go to ASH and have a poster, but you actually sit down and try to get a simple randomized trial done so that we'll finally know the answer of what is the optimum strategy to work up lymph nodes. Uh, boy, snooze fest. Sorry, there's no speakers bureau for you. You get KOL status of questions that people really wanted to know the answer to, but there was no financial backer, so sorry, you lose. Nobody's stopping you from doing this trial on your own. Man. Well, I just want to admit that I just deleted something from this podcast because we talked about something that is an idea I had and I didn't want you all to know it. So on that positive note, I'm going to thank Derek Tao for coming here for Question of the Week, and he'll be back more on future episodes. Derek, thank you so much. Thank you very much. I'm back in plenary session HQ with Dr. Sven Olsen for this week's Question of the week in the hematology or hemalignancy space. Dr. Olson, yes. what do you got for us today? I'm going to come at you with a classical hematology question because these are tough. The classical hematology, at least historically on the in-service so far, has been, they've been hard questions. They're hard questions. When there's not much phase three randomized data, you can make up all the difficult questions you wish. Is that right? You always say that, but then we always come back at you with these massive phase three studies for DVT and PE and this and that, and uh -huh. I don't know where you get this sense. I see. A, a couple of places where the lightning <laughs> strikes, and just this, just the, you know, I see what you're saying. So you like to look, a couple of places where the light falls from the lamppost, yes. and the rest of it is a sea of darkness. I suppose that's that's my punishment for uh, for going into classical hematology, just to hey, suffer the... What do those randomized studies show that show optimal factor levels for hemophilia. What is the optimal factor levels in randomized studies? 
uh, above a hundred percent typically is uh, oh that's based on rationale yes but has that been tested in a randomized study uh, probably not are there randomized studies that look at whether or not we should use um, Argatraban and HIT there's not are there any randomized studies in HIT mm, I don't know I keep hearing HIT 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 everywhere I go but I don't see any randomized studies hey what about HLH that's something you guys like to talk a lot about are there randomized studies for HLH no not really there's nothing for HLH. You can delete this whole part. No, we're going to keep this part. Okay. Oh, great. <laughs> okay. All right. So what's the question in classical hematology? So it's going to be a 68-year-old man okay. is admitted. He has acute calculus cholecystitis. He's scheduled to undergo a laparoscopic cholecystectomy. And as the hematology consultant, you're called because preoperative labs show a prothrombin time of 18 and an activated partial thromboplastin time, APTT, of 40. Platelets mm. are 90. Mm. The CBC is otherwise unremarkable with a normal white count differential and hematocrit. Patient denies any personal or family history of unusual bleeding. So which of the following represents the best management strategy perioperatively for this patient? A, no blood product transfusion. B, FFP or plasma, 20 units per kilo. C, platelets, one unit apheresis platelets. D, cryoprecipitate, one pool. It's typically like five units. Or E, vitamin K, 10 milligrams IV. Hmm. This is a tough one. So you're saying this guy's PTT is just outside the normal range and platelets of 90, a little bit on the low side. Mm-hmm. Makes you wonder that something else is going on. And I guess I would say the one thing that I'm actually quite worried about is, as we all know, with acute calculus cholecystitis, there is a risk that that can develop very severe biliary tree infections and sepsis and maybe even some DIC. Those are all things that could happen as sequela. Mm-hmm. So I guess you'd want to be sure that none of those things are happening. And hopefully one of the things you could check would be a fibrinogen level to see what that is. Mm-hmm. But you're not giving me a fibrinogen level. No, I'm not giving you that. So I think you might be playing a mind game with us. Quite a big mind game. Is that what you think? Okay. Yeah, because I think what you're saying here is this is a patient who's undergoing an emergent surgery and they do not have a personal history of bleeding, and they can't recall family history. Correct. So should you have checked any of these things at all? That's a good question. Should you have? Okay, so the choices are no transfusion, FFP, platelets, cryo, vitamin K. I guess I would say that somebody might be tempted to give all of those things, but you don't really have a firm basis to give any of them. In fact, you do have a firm basis to say don't do it. Really? Yes. I didn't know that. Why? Yes. Well, should I give you the answer? Yeah, give me the answer. Hit me. The answer is do nothing. Do nothing. Why? Well, I think um, we've all seen, as you said, people are acutely sick. They're going to have coagulation and CBC abnormalities that may simply be due to stress, mild activation of the coagulation system, or just their, uh, their baseline is a little longer than the average person. And in fact... There's plenty of randomized data that says that the INR, the PT, and the APTT correlate very poorly with bleeding outcomes, especially surgical bleeding outcomes, in unselected patients. Hmm. So, for instance, uh, there was a systematic review of studies of unselected COAG testing prior to surgery. And about three-quarters of the time, 
those coags, PTT and INR, was not associated with any bleeding. Three quarters of the time. The positive predictive value for post-op bleeding in these unselected patients was around 10%. Hmm. So that tells you that those really don't mean anything. And I think, you know, this gets forgotten sometimes, but um, especially in people like cirrhotics who have high INRs, that also doesn't really always correlate with bleeding. It's sort of a meaningless test outside of being on warfarin therapy. But I'll go even further and say that uh, there was a randomized trial. This is kind of the most illustrative one, but 2014 RCT of critically ill patients in the ICU okay. undergoing procedures. Okay. They uh, were randomized to FFP or placebo. Okay. Their INRs at baseline were one and a half, okay. 1.5 to three. Okay. None of them were bleeding currently. Uh, so half the people got FFP, half got nothing or got placebo. And there was no difference in bleeding with these procedures, no effect on any hemostatic tests. So TEG or the Rotem was no different. Thrombin generation was no different. And this has been echoed since then in a lot of different studies showing that you don't just give product because a number is abnormal. You have to have a good reason to do it. Mm, that's a good point. Well, in this case, the administration of product made the practitioner feel better. Yeah, and actually there are, there are guidelines uh, from the British Committee for Standards in Hematology and the American Society of Anesthesiology which say routine unselected anti-coag testing is not recommended. This is a grade B of recommendation. Course. Yeah. But there is direct guidelines saying not to do this. Well, I think it's a good question. I guess the only thing I, I would quibble with it is a bit that I think you got to include a fibrinogen in your question stem to make sure that we're not going down the DIC pathway because I think if you're going down the DIC pathway, your fibrinogen comes back at 90, then somebody's going to say maybe give them some cryo. What do you think about that? This is true. So, you know, giving people cryoprecipitate for a low fibrinogen in the setting of a upcoming surgery is one of the indications I think that'd be reasonable. Mm, okay. Well, but I think you make a useful point because if you have a patient who comes to your clinic and they're going to have an elective surgery and the surgeon says, I want to make sure they don't have a bleeding diathesis, but they have no personal history of having bleeding difficulties, mm -hmm. what are you going to order? Uh... I would say simply get a CBC. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, unless they have, give me a compelling reason that they have some sort of bleeding history um, or family history, I wouldn't check anything else. And in fact, if you look at people who you check a bleeding history, that's also really kind of a squirrely thing to, to think about because many people will say they bleed a lot and they end up having nothing wrong with them mm -hmm. or vice versa. Mm -hmm. So that's also kind of challenging. So unless you really get a really good history from them that's compelling, just don't check the coags. Well, that's a, that's a powerful point. All right, Dr. Olson, thanks for that question of the week. You're welcome. You've been listening to season two of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.